focus on headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines here on Focus on Headline. For this, we have our reporters Che Ji-hee and Lee Ji-sun joining us in the studio once again. Guys, welcome back. Hello. So um, today, the first day of early voting uh, for the local elections here. So first and foremost, what implications do these elections have and what are the voter turnout so far, Ji-sun? So this morning, South Koreans headed to the polling stations for early voting for local elections and parliamentary by-elections slated for next week. The importance of these elections is immense because it can determine the power of the mandate of the new government of President Yoon Suk-yeol less than a month after its launch. And this year's parliamentary by-elections are garnering much more attention than ever because seven National Assembly seats are at stake with famous politicians such as former presidential candidates Lee Jae-myung and Anthony participating in the run. Eligible voters can cast ballots at 3,551 polling stations nationwide. According to the NEC, the National Election Commission, the early votes were cast from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. for 12 hours until Saturday. The President and the First Lady also visited a polling station located in Yongsan to cast their ballots at around noon. People who have COVID and those in quarantine will start casting their votes from 6.30, a little while from from now to 8 p.m. on Saturday. So if you get to the polling station and wait in line before 8, you can still vote even after 8. A single voter can get up to 8 different ballots all at once. Voters who vote in the regions where parliamentary by-elections are held will get 8 ballots. Other regions, 7 ballots but five for Jeju and four for Sejong. More than 44.3 million people are eligible to vote for this year's local elections. And according to a survey conducted by Gallup Korea, almost 70% of the people, 69.8 to be exact, said that they will definitely vote for the local elections. Of these 69.8%, 30.3% of them said that they will cast their votes this week during the early voting period. And as of now, the voter turnout of the local elections account for 9.2 percent. All right. Uh, considering, right, it's the local elections and the parliamentary by-elections, the uh, the early voter turnout, not so bad. And that's, you know, tomorrow when it's a Saturday, I'm sure more people will head out there. And speaking of these uh, mm-hmm. polls, I guess who got another phone call? Me. <laughs> and uh, guess what I told them? I can't vote, right? So I got more than a dozen phone calls this time. Have you guys noticed that there's been a lot of these campaign calls that have been coming in these days? Yeah. yeah. Like too much. Mm-hmm. Too much. When I'm working, it's actually a distraction. No, it really is. It's got, I don't know who's calling i don't know which party members are calling but it's just i have to block every single time now because it's the the amount of phone calls that you're getting because of this uh it's just ridiculous but it really shows you how important Mm -hmm. uh the local elections and how all these candidates are trying to garner as many votes as possible here Mm -hmm. so again uh this is just the early voting the actual voting date is going to be june 1st i'm sure we'll have more thorough coverage on this as well. Uh, we have some daily updates on the COVID-19 situation here in the country as well as in uh, North Korea as well. Omicron wave in the South, again, maintaining its downward trend, but the North continuously reporting over 100,000 quote-unquote fever cases on a daily basis. Jihee, let's get the details. Right, so South Korea reported 16,584 new COVID-19 cases, recording a daily figure of less than 20,000
person for the second straight day now. Now, the total caseload has been brought up to 18,053,287, according to KDCA. And the number of critically ill patients dropped by more than 30 to 207, and 40 more COVID-19 related deaths were reported. So the fatality rate stands unchanged at 0.13%. And on the vaccination front, 86.9% of the 50 million people in the country have received their full two-dose vaccinations, and 64.9% of the population have received their first booster shots. Uh, But the pandemic situation looks grimmer in the north. The KCNA said today that 100,460 more people with fever symptoms were reported in the 24 period leading up to 6 p.m. yesterday. Uh, And no additional deaths were reported the previous day, but then the emergency epidemic prevention uh, headquarters said one death was reported as of 6 p.m. yesterday. Uh, And the KCNA said more than 3.27 million cumulative cases have been reported since late April, and of the cases, more than 3 million have fully recovered, and some 234,000 are still under treatment. Uh, While the daily fever cases soared up to the 200,000 and even the 300,000 mark for a few days when the uh, North reported its first COVID-19 suspected case in mid-May, the daily figure dropped and is remaining in the 100,000 range for the past six days now. Uh, However, local experts are questioning the accuracy of these reported figures, also saying that there's no way to really verify uh, the accuracy of them. Nevertheless, North Korean state media outlets are continuously stressing that the pandemic has successfully been put under control by the regime. Yeah, again, I mean, uh, I mean, they're controlling what the what goes out on the mm. news, right? And we're not getting these uh, names from like certain sources, but we're getting it from KCNA, which is a state-run media. So I, there could be more deaths. Uh, happening in North Korea, which I wouldn't be surprised of, but the fact that they're saying zero or one or things like that, and the fact that they're saying that there's a downward trend uh, in the figures could be a little bit skeptical, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were more than a dozen North Korean ballistic missile tests uh, this year, Uh, just way too much. But all of them, again, uh, have one thing in common, is the fact that they violated the UN Uh, resolutions here. So uh, yesterday, the UN drafted a UN Security Council resolution to strengthen sanctions on North Korea. Not not so much of a surprising (laughs) result for this, but Jiza, nevertheless, tell us what happened. The UNSC voted on a U.S. proposed resolution yesterday to impose additional sanctions on North Korea. And like you said, SJ, the vote comes after North Korea fired three missiles on Wednesday morning towards the waters off its east coast as Biden's trip to Asia came to an end. And needless to say, these missile firings were banned by the Security Council. However, the bid for new U.N. sanctions on North Korea failed. And this is despite having 13 members voting yes, which is much much more than nine, uh, which is the number of resolution needs to get to be passed. And this is because of the vetoes of China and Russia. And these vetoes were the first time they have publicly broken unanimity since they started punishing North Korea in 2006. So to repeat, a resolution needs nine yeses uh, and no vetoes by the permanent members, which are Russia, China, France, the UK, and the US. Other than the two countries, China and Russia, the other 13 members 
all voted to adopt the resolution. The resolution proposed banning tobacco and oil exports to North Korea because Kim Jong-un is known to be a chain smoker. It also proposed blacklisting Lazarus Hacking Group, which is the U.S. said is tied to North Korea. The U.S. reportedly said that it engages in cyber espionage, data theft, monetary heists, and destructive malware operations against government, military, financial, manufacturing, publishing, media, and an entertainment institutions as well as shipping companies and critical infrastructure. Over the past 16 years since 2006, the Security Council has gradually and unanimously stepped up sanctions to cut the fundings for North Korea's nuclear weapons and ballistic missile programs. The UNSC last tightened sanctions on North Korea in 2017, and in the last sanctions adopted by the Council in December 2017, members decided on further restricting petroleum exports to North Korea if it conducted a ballistic missile launch capable of reaching intercontinental ranges. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield described the vote as a disappointing day for the council. She said Washington has assessed that North Korea has carried out six ICBM launches this year and was, quote, actively preparing to conduct a nuclear test, unquote. However, Russia Russia's opinion differed. Russian UN ambassador said the introduction of new sanctions against North Korea is a path to a death end. And Russia also said that sanctions on North Korea have proved to be ineffective. China's UN ambassador Zhang Jun said that additional sanctions against North Korea would not help and would only lead to more negative results and escalation of confrontation. Meanwhile, the spokesperson of South Korean government Choi Yong-sam said that the Korean government expresses deep regret that the new Security Council resolution has not been adopted despite the approval of most members. Yeah, again, so th- this is the interesting part, right? Like before, it's like closed behind it and it's, uh, it's unanimously voted and they always get two vetoes. And I think everyone knows who those two countries are. It's yeah. Russia and China. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they openly uh, reveal that they're going to be vetoing this resolution which really shows you, I think, how the, the global situation is right now. I keep talking about teams forming. Mm-hmm. It's always been China and Russia and then North Korea kind of in the mix there, kind of. Um, but yeah, they, they're openly saying, I mean, this is what it is. And, and China and Russia are these two countries that are known to get slapped with different sanctions from the United States, from the EU members and so forth. And so, you know, they could be saying, oh, negative effects and escalation of confrontation, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, it, it really just shows you that, uh, you know, this is the team's that are forming at this time. So anytime there are talks about these uh, UN UN Security Council resolutions being uh, uh, posted up there, it's it's not going to be, you know, passed, right, because of these Mm -hmm. two countries. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, meanwhile, delivering a lengthy speech on Thursday, uh, outlining the Biden administration's stance uh, towards China. This was quite interesting. Chi, tell us more. Sure. So the top U.S. diplomat delivered a roughly 40-minute speech at George Washington University, outlining the Biden administration's uh, strategy toward China yesterday. Now, this was a much-anticipated speech uh, amid all the complex Indo-Pacific news that has occurred in the meantime, including President Joe Biden's trip to to South Korea and Japan, of course, for the Quad Summit and the launch of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. 
So in his address, Blinken referred to China as, quote-unquote, the most serious long-term challenge to the international order. Uh, and he also described the U.S. administration's approach toward Beijing with the words, quote-unquote, invest, align, and compete, and uh, said that although the United States does not seek conflict with China, it's prepared to defend its interests. Now, he also described the Washington-Beijing relationship as one of the most complex and consequential relationships of any that we have in the world today. And while describing how the U.S. intends to approach the relationship in a broader sense, Blinken also made a clear distinction between the two nations, using expressions such as China's quote-unquote repressive government, and he also mentioned its unfair trade practices as well as human rights abuses. But at the same time, the uh, top diplomat repeatedly emphasized that the U.S. does not seek to clash with its political system by saying things like, uh, we're not looking for conflict or a new Cold War. On regards to the Taiwan issue, Blinken stressed that U.S. policy toward the island has not changed, despite the comments that were made last week by President Joe Biden that the U.S. would respond militarily if Beijing were to attack Taiwan. And Blinken also said the U.S. opposes any unilateral change to the status quo from either side and expects matters to be resolved peacefully. And as the U.S. is determined to avoid both a conflict and a new Cold War, like he said, Blinken said Washington is prepared to strengthen diplomacy as well as to boost communication with Beijing across full across a full range of issues. And uh, he said the U.S. is ready to cooperate on matters of common interest, such as climate change and COVID-19. Also, the uh, U.S. Department of Defense held a briefing yesterday about the missile firings of North Korea and uh, not to mention their cooperation with South Korea and Japan. Now, historically, there have been actions taking place bilaterally uh, between the U.S. and South Korea and the U.S. and Japan. But could Japan and Korea work together this time around, especially with uh, the new UN administration. She's going to tell us more about this. So John Kirby, the spokesperson of the U.S. Department of Defense, said in a briefing that the U.S. has always been keen on improving trilateral cooperation between the U.S., Japan, and South Korea. And he went on by saying that the U.S. also encouraged Japan and South Korea to have bilaterally to explore options for mutual self-defense as well. To the question about the response measure relating to DPRK missiles, he did not speculate about future response actions in regards to when the U.S. will take them or when they will actually start talking about taking the actions. But he said that the U.S. talked about the missiles of North Korea with South Korea and Japan. However, he said that the U.S. is clearly willing to take actions with either South Korea and Japan bilaterally as well as trilaterally with both allies. He also added that the U.S. already conducted a bilateral exercise with Japan's air air self-defense force, as well as South Korean's military personnel, and that that was a trilateral exercise. But soon the department made a correction saying the U.S. conducted a bilateral exercise with Japan and a separate bilateral exercise with South Korea. They specifically and clearly stated that it was not a trilateral exercise. And just today, an announcement was made by Korea's foreign ministry. The chief nuclear envoys of South Korea, the U.S., and Japan will meet next week on June 3rd to discuss North Korea's provocations. 
Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised uh, moving forward in the future, there's going to be a trilateral summit, right, with South Korea, the United States, and Japan. I mean, this is something that uh, I think Biden really wants to happen, uh, really mm-hmm. just kind of ramp up that area in the Asia-Pacific uh, region. They really will need that cooperation uh, with uh, South Korea and Japan. Not, not necessarily because they want them to get wealth, you know, get along together, but, you know, United States really needs them to work together for United States, right? right? So uh, we'll probably see more and more cooperation on that front. Uh, North Korea on Monday will take over as chair of the World Disarmament Forum. Is this true? Uh, this has sparked an appeal by some of the UN accredited NGOs for UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and some of the members and non-member states to boycott the conference. Uh, gee, I had to do a second take and read it over and over again <laughs> no to see way. if I actually read this correctly. <laughs> gee, tell us more. Sure. So the conference on disarmament in which North Korea will take over the presidency starting May 30th for four weeks until June 24th is a forum participated by 65 nations and is considered the cornerstone of nuclear disarmament efforts. Uh, and the forum negotiated the Nuclear Non-Proliferation uh, Treaty and is billed by the UN as, quote-unquote, the single multilateral disarmament negotiating forum of the international community. So ahead of the forum, uh, like you had to read this for uh, multiple times, yeah. there's a reason, of course, and the NGOs and human rights organizations are strongly urging related parties to strongly protest the upcoming chairmanship of North Korea. And Hillel Newell, uh, executive director of UN Watch, an NGO that monitors the United Nations, strongly opposed North Korea's presidency over the forum, saying that, quote unquote, having the North Korean regime of Kim Jong-un preside over over global nuclear weapons disarmament will be like putting a serial rapist in charge of a women's shelter. Uh, This was quite a strong statement, and he added that, quote-unquote, North Korea is the world's foremost weapons proliferator, and that the regime builds its own nuclear weapons in contravention of its treaty commitments. So describing having North Korea as president of the disarmament forum as a fundamental conflict of interest, the UN Watch urged the US, Canada, Britain, France, Germany, and all other member and observer states to refuse to send ambassadors to any meeting of this UN forum that's being chaired by the North. And the Conference of Disarmament, for your information, was established in 1979 after a special UN General Assembly session and has negotiated major multilateral arms limitation and disarmament agreements in the past. Uh, And the recent appeal by the UN Watch has been currently signed by 30 organizations, including the HRNK or the U.S. Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I want I, I want to see how it pans out. Like if, if they do chair it, right? Yeah. I know for the longest time they were mem- uh, they were part of it, right? Mm-hmm. They, they were I guess uh, part of the the conference on disarmament and I think there were a couple of times they usually take part in it. Mm-hmm. I think there were some times uh, because of some, uh, maybe because of COVID, they didn't take part in it. But I don't remember them ever having to chair it, right? They Which, did once, like in 2011. That was like 10 years ago. Yeah. But you, the U.S. had opposed that. I, I mean, yeah, yeah. not surprisingly. But I <laughs> no, I, I really wanted to see, I wanted to know how they were able to chair. Like, what, exactly. what are they going to say, right? They're like, what, what can they say? Like, uh, we need to get rid of nuclear weapons except for us. 
um, or I'm really, really curious mm -hmm. as to how this would pan out. But not surprised that there's a lot of people boycotting yeah. this issue. Um, let's go on to our next piece of news today. I'm sure uh, a lot of our BTS fans out there, uh, if you are here in Korea, you got the news, I think, early this morning. They're going to be going to the White House. Why is that? And why uh, the seven-member group BTS headed to the White House to meet U.S. President Joe Biden? Jisun is going to explain to us. Tell us more. So like you said, the K-pop boy band BTS is heading to the White House. <laughs> the famous boy band will meet the President Joe Biden on Tuesday next week to discuss rising anti-Asian hate incidents. The U.S. government said that the president himself have spoken about his strong willingness to root out anti-Asian hate crimes. President Biden and BTS are expected to discuss the importance of diversity and inclusion and how BTS as youth ambassadors could spread the message of hope and positivity across the world. BTS has been vocal about anti-Asian hate in the past in their tours and on social media. On Twitter last year, the band shared a posting that said, and I quote, We stand against racial discrimination. We condemn violence. You, I, and we all have the right to be respected. We will stand we, we will stand together, unquote. Individual members of the group have shared their personal experience of being discriminated by race as well. Uh, they said they were asked why Asians speak English. <laughs> the BTS army is obviously and deservingly proud of the band and is looking forward to seeing BTS in Washington. While BTS is getting more and more popular as they spread messages of hope and positivity all over the world, Korea is getting more and more money with Koreans, Korea content booming popularity. According to Korea Federation for International Cultural Exchange on Thursday, Korea earned about 11.7 billion U.S. dollars from exports of Korean goods or contents last year in 2021, which was up $170 million compared to the previous year. And the major contributing factors were BTS and Squid Game, according to the experts. The exports for consumer goods, including food, cosmetics, and accessories, also increased by 20% last year. Now, BTS and Squid Game may have kicked things off to a good start, but according to uh, speakers at the business forum hosted by Kotra and its British Chamber of Commerce in Korea on Thursday, K-Culture's growth sphere is expanding as we speak and is now reaching into web entertainment, the metaverse, and AI technology. I have a, uh, I know this wasn't a point of discussion for us on mm -hmm, the program mm -hmm. today, but I do want to kind of talk about this, right? I mean, there's for, let's face it, for like two plus years since the COVID-19 pandemic kind of started, uh, there's definitely been an increase in Asian hate. Mm -hmm. uh, I talked to my friends about it all the time and they say it happens. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't get reported on the news, but it happens on a daily basis. Uh, BTS uh, kind of being invited to the White House. Uh, is this more symbolic, do you think? Or do you think there's the, I guess, the fame and popularity of the BTS is going to somewhat change I don't, or, or impact or de decrease the amount of anti-Asian hate crimes that happen in the United States? I, what, what do you guys think about basically th this whole idea here? BTS kind of uh, meeting with Joe Biden to fight uh, anti-Asian hate crimes. Uh, let's start off with you, Chihi. 
Well, we'll have to see uh, the effects of having invited them to the White House will yeah. have on the decrease in Asian hate. But I think the idea of inviting the most popular Asian boy band uh, to this prestigious meeting under the uh, idea or the purpose of decreasing Asian hate is really good. And I hope that it could have a positive ripple effect. But then uh, it shouldn't just remain or end as a kind of one-term event where they just have some popular uh, boy band come over and just make it all symbolic but it must also have like it must be really have a long-term kind of effect uh, in contributing to the decrease in Asian hate I believe yeah Jisun, what about yourself? Well, like you said, it's definitely symbolic to some extent. But while it could be symbolic, I believe that it could have some uh, ripple effects like Jihee said as well. Because, well, the BTS, they represent the youth. They represent the young Asians. And the fact that they were invited to the White House, where the most powerful man on earth is living really shows that they have a huge power as well well just look at president joe biden he's caucasian he's the most powerful man in the world because he's the president of the u.s right (laughs) but well yeah but still people think that it is a symbolic term uh, it's a symbol that the korean uh, or the asian boy band went there shows that they can get close to the caucasian or uh the most powerful per- politician in the u.s <laughs> i mean like I, I really see it that way if you think about it if you so- think about it just like a you don't really like back in the days, we didn't really imagine an Asian person or Asian singer to ever visit the you, White House. You know, there are actually many, many Asians that went to the White well, House. Yeah, but like a boy band, it's like that's why I said the young population, the youth population. I, I, no, there were also young Asians that uh, went to the White House. Uh, I, I, I mean, it's special. Yes, I don't, I don't want to. Don't get me wrong. Uh, for all you armies out there, don't, don't send your hate mails to me. Don't get me wrong. It's a very special moment, right? My biggest question is because as a Korean American, right, who have family in New York, I have friends in New York, and they have to always kind of be watching their backs to make sure that there is no random attacks because it it does happen, right? Mm-hmm. And and I said this on the show before. I lived in the United States since I was a kid. Uh, up until I was an adult in my you know younger twenties, uh, lower twenties, you know New York City can be dangerous, mm-hmm. mm. uh, and there was always racism. But I never thought that my life could be threatened. Threatened, mm. right? Like I never thought there was gonna be a random attack because I was Asian. Maybe you know I got mugged a couple of times, um, but it never in my life that I said, "Oh my goodness, I could really get attacked for absolute just for being Asian." But that's actually happening right now, right? So my thing is, yes, it's very symbolic in that BTS. And I think it's 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 a great honor for BTS to go to the White House. But the thing is, for them to deliver a message, right? So the vast number of people who know BTS, mm. the vast number of people who listen to BTS, these are people who have already... You know, they have no ignorance against Asians. They right. have, well, you know, very much accepted the, the K-culture, the Asian culture and so forth. Mm. The people that we really need to target are those that are ignorant about the Asian cultures and the Asian societies, right? And so I, my only concern right now is by kind of putting BTS there, you're only targeting those that are already aware of the Asian community. And right. so how is that going to help 
decrease the anti-Asian, uh, what is it, the anti-Asian hate crimes is, is my question. So again, not taking anything, you know, you know, I'm not saying BTS, I mean, there's, there's no point in going there. I think it's absolutely uh, an honor for them to go. And I think it really puts South Korea higher up in there, which again, you know, more knowledge about South Korea means less ignorance about a certain uh, group of people and maybe we'll fight uh, Asian hate crime that way. But I think, you know, there needs to be more done. Yeah. Mm. Let's just say it's baby steps. Baby steps, yes, but uh, still, uh, Joy, our writer, is like writing on live YouTube. She says, well, BTS fans can spread the campaign. True, true. It's absolutely true. But again, I mean, the, the vast majority of people who are kind of uh, conducting these hate crimes, are they going to listen, right? I think there just needs to be other things that needs to be done, uh, in my opinion. I'm just I'm just saying this because I'm worried, right, uh, mm-hmm. all the Asians uh, in the United States right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to turn our focus to some uh, Korean literature-related news. Uh, you know, we talk about K-culture, right? K-literature has been in the spotlight uh, recently. Uh, I remember what happened this morning. Uh, the entire news staff was mm-hmm. waiting for the announcement mm-hmm. of this. And then all of a sudden I heard, oh, so Korean horror writer Chung Bora's English translated version of uh, the the Cursed Bunny, Cheju Toki, which by the way, we had uh, Anton Her, who was the one that uh, translated mm-hmm. into English. This was shortlisted for the 2022 International Booker Prize. Unfortunately, did not get an award here. Unfortunately, we would love to have talked to uh, Anton Her about this. Uh, but still, Chung Bora, her achievement expected to pay way for more Korean literature to gain uh, more recognition internationally. So, Chi, let's get more on this. Right. So, Chong Bura is a writer uh, specializing in Slavic literature and was considered a genre writer, they call. And she was pretty much excluded from South Korea's mainstream literary scene. And Cursed Bunny has not won any awards in the country so far. And Chung, until now, mostly earned a living teaching at a university and translating Russian literature. So she was relatively unknown to local readers, uh, but her recent achievement of having her 2017 collection of short stories, Cursed Bunny, being named a finalist for this year's International Booker Prize, uh, created a dramatic turn in her literary life. So the book had caught the eye of translator Anton Ha, as you said, and Ha's English edition of the book released by a British publisher was shortlisted for the prestigious literary, literary awards. And until now, only only two South Korean writers, Hang Gang for The Vegetarian or Chesik Juiza and Hwang Seokyung uh, for At Dusk, Hejil Muryeop have been nominated for the honor, but they were far more established and well-regarded domestically. Yeah. yeah, so despite the horror elements in her work, Chong explained that her collection was fundamentally about the innate loneliness of being human uh, and reflects her own experience of becoming used to the state of being lonely as she spent nearly a decade studying overseas as a graduate student. So while genre writing, a mix of science fiction, horror, and fantasy has not been widely accepted and recognized as mainstream in the country, uh, Chung's re- recent achievement on the international stage, although she didn't win the prize, is expected to create a positive ripple effect and help expand and revitalize the diversity of this particular field of literature. And in fact, one of the judges had commented that the series of nominations of Korean literature for international literary prizes over the past few years is evidence that there's a much 
much potential and there's energy within these work. And also, Chung's achievement once again highlighted the importance of literary uh, translation and localization when it comes to raising the recognition of local literature worldwide. In fact, Hangang's The Vegetarian, or Cheshikjuja, winning the International Booker Prize in 2016, has contributed to the facilitation of Korean literature's international recognition. And by numbers, uh, the number of domestic literature work winning or being nominated for international awards increased by over 50% for the past five years. Yeah, not to mention, I think I read somewhere uh, a news article not too long ago saying that there is far more translated versions of certain Korean art, uh, literature works now mm-hmm. than it was, you know, like 10 years ago, for instance, because there's just, you know, these publishers, they get requests, right? Mm-hmm. We, we want... Uh, translated versions of this book in English, in Chinese, in Japanese, in, in Russian, in so many different uh, languages mm-hmm. now, which shows you uh, how popular it's getting. By the way, did you guys read The Vegetarian? I, I actually did. did. Yeah. You, know, you did too? Yes, I Yay. did. But I Good didn't really us. like it, you know, to you know, be honest. You know, that, uh, yes. you, know, you know that thing where don't judge a book by the cover? The, the cover? This one was don't judge a book by the title. <laughs> so I was like, oh, a title like The Vegetarian. It seems so wholesome, right? I was like, let me, let me, because you know, everyone was talking about this yeah. book, right? So like, I rarely read. And then I was like, what, what, what is this? <laughs> like, what am I reading here? But really though, I, you know, K-literature, I think uh, this is the... A big thing we talked about K film being big, uh, K I mean K pop and K drama mm. has been big, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know I don't know K artwork might be the next one, but K literature I think it's like the next big thing moving forward here. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, mm-hmm. I mean for you guys, I mean like you're seeing the boom of K culture worldwide, mm-hmm. but uh, you know where do you want to? see more people kind of uh, put their focus on moving forward like because i mean k-pop and like k-drama that's mm. like that's like what's dominating mm-hmm. right now right mm-hmm. so like in what sector in the k-culture do you want more people to kind of focus their attention now uh, moving forward let's start off with you chisan well i'm just definitely gonna say k-food and i don't want people to focus <laughs> on it i think we should do a better job on promoting that i think we should focus on how vegetarian recipes can be developed because I heard from vegetarians from other countries in Korea saying that it's very difficult to find a vegetarian dish because there hasn't been like a sign indicating that it's a vegetarian menu. So little things like that to to take care of the people who have specific needs. I think these kind of efforts could be made on our sides. And also the translation, please don't call all mook fish cake because I wouldn't even want to eat fish cake. (laughs) You know, actually, it's it's interesting that you mentioned uh, all mook because there was there was actually a competition right really? so, so my father-in-law he uh-huh. messages me and he really messages me not because we have we're you know we're bad terms but uh, he just uh, he doesn't talk so a lot. honest no he just doesn't talk a lot right? uh-huh. but uh-huh. He, so he sends me a link with the competition that i forgot which city it was down south they had a competition for a new english word for amuk oh, oh really because they didn't like the term fish cake right it's so yeah, yeah. it doesn't it's not you can't imagine it, yeah. Fish. Yeah. And so, also, tteokbokki is like spicy rice cake. What is that? It should be like spicy rice pasta or something like that. So I remember mm. with Amuk, uh, the the I thought I was gonna win, right? Mm. I thought that that what did you so say? that three hundred that three million one is mine, right? Oh, I was like, come on, it was uh, battered fried uh, okay. fish batter. You lost oh, me. Fish batter. <laughs> fish okay. batter. It is fish batter. Mm. Mm. But that doesn't sound sound tasty. You know what ended up winning? What? What? The Amuk. 
What? You know what? I think that is actually a nice translation. Just <coughs> go with the name. But was there any description of it? No, it was Del Amuk. Mm. And I was like, that is the laziest name ever. You just went from <laughs> give us a new name for Amuk. You know what? I would just say fish food ham or fish food sausage. Oh, fish ham? Oh. <coughs> no. Why are you coughing? <laughs> you don't like my idea? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, that this is, is fun. Absolutely okay. not. Uh, Dean says, it's been happening for years. My paternal grandmother, she's from Busan. She would always be harassed when she, uh, we lived in Ohio, meaning uh, the Asian uh, hate crime. Mm. Uh, Dean says, I eat kimchi every day. Okay. Kudos to you. Kimchi is good for you. Yeah, that, it's, it's good, good for you, health. right? Uh, nevertheless, guys, thank you guys for coming in with the report. Uh, I guess I didn't ask Chihi. What she, what she oh. thought but uh, we are out of time right mm. now so uh, we'll maybe uh, hold that off for next time stay safe mm. and uh, we'll see you guys next week thank you thank you you can listen to Korea Now with me SJ Lee by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com so make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays 6pm to 8pm Korea time